I was sent this past week an article recounting the valiant uh, efforts of a man by the name of Samuel Johnson to develop disciplines in his life. He was a committed believer, by the way, and a prolific author who lived most of the 18th century. In fact, I'm sure he's, he would be a little embarrassed to know that his diary has been dissected and expressed, but very encouraging to the believer. His prayer journal and diary reveal his lifelong battle against laziness, which he called sloth. Kind of a word lost to our English language, but this is what he battled. And he repeated these attempts and resolutions to get up early in the morning to pray. And he would fail more than he would succeed. In 1738, his diary records, O Lord, enable me to redeem the time which I have spent in sloth. Nineteen years later, he would write, O mighty God, enable me to shake off sloth and redeem the time misspent in idleness and sin. Help me to diligently apply the days yet remaining. Two years later, 1761, he wrote, I have resolved until I have resolved that I am afraid to resolve ever again. (laughs) Now we'd put that in our diary, wouldn't we? In 1764, he wrote, I purpose to rise at eight o'clock because though I shall not rise early, at least it will be better for I have risen now at two. Don't you feel better about yourself now after knowing that admission? That must have been a long day. In 1769, he writes, I am not yet in a state to form any resolutions. I purpose and hope to rise early in the morning by eight and by degrees then by six. In 1775, his entry read, When I look back upon resolution of improvement, and amendments which have year after year been made and broken, why do I yet try to resolve again? I try, he writes to himself, note this, because reformation is necessary and despair is sinful. He resolves then again to rise at eight. In 1781, three years before his death, he wrote, I will not despair Help me, help me, oh my God, to rise at eight. (laughs) Never quit, try, fail, succeed, fail, fail, succeed. If our diaries were written and open, they would say the same, would they not? Why would God use Samuel Johnson in the way that he did so significantly without ever succeeding to get up? It remained one of his signature battles throughout his life. Well, for one thing, Samuel Johnson never excused it to himself. He never reached the point where he said, well, ho-hum, I've tried, and God understands, and it's between me and him anyway. No, he would fight the giant sloth through life. He confessed his failure to God, which is why God could use him as God will use us, as he is ready and willing to forgive those who do not excuse but confess. God used Samuel Johnson for the same reason he'll use you and me. 
He will not use an unrepentant vessel. He will not use an insincere vessel. He will not use a dirty vessel. But he will use a broken vessel, a confessing vessel. He is ready and eager to employ. The brief biographies of the Lord's 12 disciples reveal this very truth in what we could call the Diary of John or the Journal of John. He records the, the study in failure and confession and failure and confession in the life of Peter. And so before we surround this table and its elements, let me have you turn to that gospel account in chapter 21 of John. It's really nothing more than a story of how God restores broken things. How he uses broken people, how he touches broken hearts for his glory. Jesus, to set the stage very briefly, is risen. He hadn't yet ascended. He's making several appearances to his disciples. And they are remarkable appearances because of what he conveys to them. And this is one of the most remarkable to me as he recommissions Peter. Look, look down at verse 12. He's there on the seashore. They've been, they've been fishing. This is where he says, cast your net on the other side. They do. They bring in a haul of fish. And they come to the seaside, and there's Jesus. He has a charcoal fire going. He's got some fish and um, some bread. He says, come and have breakfast. What a wonderful Lord. None of the disciples ventured to question him, you know, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. In other words, they're having a hard time figuring out that he really is alive. Jesus came and he took the bread and gave them and the fish likewise. Imagine he's serving them with those scars he's chosen to retain. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now notice verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, Jonah Hebrew, Greek John, do you love me? More than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Now, would you make a couple of observations with me? Would you notice it wasn't Simon Peter? John called him that. He said to him, Simon, son of John. It's just almost as if he implies, you know, back when I named you that nickname Peter, Cephas, Little Pebble, that's what I want you to live up to and you haven't. You aren't steadfast. You aren't consistent. But that's what Peter thought he was. He thought that nickname fit him. When Jesus said, you're going to be little pebble, he thought, yeah, that that works for me. When the Lord told him in the upper room, you're going to deny me three times, Peter said, that doesn't fit me. I'm not going to do that. All these other men might, but not me. My love for you is so much greater than theirs. You just watch and see. So here at the seaside, it's as if Jesus drops that. He says, Simon, let's just drop that that little rock part out. Let's get back to the basics. It's, 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 It's Simon, son of John. Do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. 
Now, expositors don't all agree about the significance of the different terms chosen here in this conversation that are all translated love in your English Bible. They're actually two different words, and I I would agree with those that would say it, it isn't irrelevant. I can't imagine John personally writing of this account and not taking that special care to note the differences because of the differences the words communicated. The term Jesus used when he said, do you love me, is agapao. Do you have loyal, faithful, consistent love for me? And Peter would respond with, Falao, Lord, you know that I have strong, warm affection for you. As a friend, for another beloved friend. So the Lord is asking Peter here, Peter, do you have have that kind of strong love for me? And we're going to be told a little later that this is going to grieve Peter. But but you notice the confidence and the boldness and the brashness and the, the resoluteness with which Peter had spoken earlier that had kind of fueled his attitude and, and fueled his spirit and fueled his decisions. I don't need to pray with you throughout the night. I'm good. That was Peter. Now that's been crushed out of him. He was broken. And get this, the Lord wants to crush him even more because he will not use proud, confident, self-assured vessels, he will only use broken, crushed, contrite vessels. Did you notice at the end of the first question that Jesus adds the words, do you love me, what, more than these? Who are the these here? Well, some think it's the nets and the boats and the sails and the enterprise, and the entrepreneurial spirit, and the family business, and all that. Others think it's a reference to his love as opposed to these other men. That is, do you love me more than these other men love me? Your own world of friends and loved ones. Others believe, it might be all three, but others believe, and I would throw my head in here, that that Jesus is tying this question back to that upper room where Peter said, everybody else is going to forsake you, but not me. I love you with that kind of loyalty. They will, I can understand, you know, but not me. I will, Mark's gospel adds, I will die with you if I have to and never deny you. In other words, I love you with a dying, loyal, consistent, persevering love so much more than these other men. It's you and me, Lord. And so he says to him, Oh, Simon, son of John, do you really love me more than these other men love me? And Peter's response effectively, I believe, is saying, Lord, you... I can't say that now like I once did. But I do have a warm affection for you. And Jesus stuns Peter and the other guys, I'm sure, with what he does next. Because now you're expecting the rebuke. Now you would expect him to say, well, I'm glad you finally admitted it and I'm done with you and I'm on to somebody else. But notice what he says. 
He says, effectively, that I can work with, with you. Tend my lambs. He recommissions him. Tend means feed, basco. The lambs are nian. It's a reference to those weak in the faith who are prone to wander away. Peter, you wandered away. Now I want you to go after those who wander away and feed them. It'll be a different Peter. And he'll do that, by the way, with Mark, that Paul says none of him. He failed. He quit. And Peter says, I'll, I'll, I'll take him with me. He says a second time, verse 16, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now notice here in this question, he drops out any mention of comparison. Well, Peter got the point. Now it's just Simon, you alone. Okay, I'm just talking to you. Don't even think about everybody else. Do you loyally, faithfully love me? And again, Peter responds effectively by saying, Lord, you know I can't use that word you've used, but you know that I have strong affection for you as a friend or family member. James Montgomery Boyce, now what the Lord said, that it was as if Jesus was asking Peter, do you love me with 100% love? And Peter would respond, all I can give you is 60%. And the Lord responds somewhat shockingly, I can work with that kind of honesty and humility. And so he restates him again into that ministry where he says, shepherd my sheep. This is the flock at large. And this shepherding, by the way, transcends, Peter, it transcends the feeding you receive from me, the leading of other elders in our fellowship. It's a ministry that you will occupy as you care for and encourage and guard each other. Shepherd my sheep. Now, this would have been a little difficult, I think, and we miss it. But Peter, he's not a shepherd. He's a fisherman. He knew how to work with boats and oars and sails and hooks and nets. He's being called to effectively change his life. As one author put it, fishermen don't stay up at night protecting their fish. They don't nurse fish back to health. They don't carry wounded fish on their shoulders. If they lose a fish, they don't dive in and go looking for them. Shepherds do that. The best kind of people to nurture and pursue and feed and nurse and lead and care for sheep are broken, crushed, grace-filled, forgiven people. He says to him the third time, verse 17, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter's grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And he said, tend my sheep. Now Jesus here changes his terminology. 
This is a powerfully condescending moment, I believe, where the best shepherd ever stoops to his lamb who wandered and and drops the use of agapao and chooses Peter's own word phileo and says, okay, Peter, do you have deep affection for me? I'll take you where you are. Let me paraphrase this conversation to try and convey this, this change. He's saying effectively, okay, Peter, the best you can offer me is the affection of a, of a friend, family member. I can work with that because you and I both know that at this moment in your life, if, if you were to say to me that you had unwavering, loyal love for me, you'd just be bragging like the old days, the old Simon Peter. So Simon, son of John, do you love me as a close friend? This question brought him grief. Why? Because it reminded him of the three failures in that courtyard where he denied everything. And and the progression of his denial is, is startling. To, to reread, he says, no, I'm not his disciple. I don't know him. I've never met him. Not, okay, he used to be my friend, but not anymore. No, he was never my friend, and I never knew him. Peter, Simon, son of John, are you willing to declare that I am your friend? He's recommissioning him through this crushing conversation, getting at the heart of this man. It's interesting to me that Jesus could have asked Peter a thousand different questions. I mean, if I were Jesus, I would have asked him a few more. You know, there's a lot of stuff we need to cover, Peter. Have a seat. Go ahead and eat. Then let's talk. Are you really sorry for what you did? I mean, are you willing to apologize to all the other disciples? How about me? Do you know how I felt when our eyes met in that courtyard? Do you know what you did to me? Joining them. And here's, here would be my favorite. Peter, do you promise never to deny me again? No, it's, do you love me? Isn't that the core of it all? Isn't that the the crux of the matter anyway? Isn't that the best question? Doesn't that summarize everything? It's the bottom line. Isn't our lack of prayer a reflection on our love of Christ? Isn't our sin a reflection of our love for Christ? If you are unfaithful to your wife, isn't the core issue... Not loving Christ? If you cheat or steal or lie, doesn't it go back to what it says of our love for Christ? If you're angry or bitter or resentful or, or rebellious or, or, or greedy or gluttonous or whatever it is, isn't it because we love ourselves more than Christ? This is the best question. Maybe in 2013 we ought to stop praying so much that God will give us a greater love for our spouse and our kids and our home and our career and our job and our ministry and whatever else. And a greater love for Christ. 
like the hymn writer who said it this way, more love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. This is my earnest plea, more love. Once earthly joy I craved, sought peace and rest, now thee alone I seek. You give what is best. This all my prayer shall be, more love, O Christ, to thee, more love to thee. All the things that Jesus could have focused on with this broken, fallen, crushed disciple. All the things that needed to be changed. All the things that needed to be resolved between them came down to this. Is it any wonder that when Jesus Christ was asked, what's the greatest commandment? That he didn't say what I probably would have said. You can't do that. They're all great. No, he said, no, here it is. This is the greatest. This is the priority. That you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. That's it. And out of that emanates everything else. So he was right to ask, Peter, Simon, do you love me? And his third response here in verse 17, I love this response. Lord, you know all things. In the upper room, he had told the Lord, you don't know anything about me. I'm not going to deny you. That's not me. That's not Peter the Rock. These other guys will, not me. And now he says, even though it was crushing him, you know everything about me. And Jesus says, you know, I can work with you. (laughs) Feed my sheep. Did Peter learn... Well, the man who had earlier said, Lord, everybody's going to fall away except me. I'm made out of better stuff. As an old man, he writes, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Because God is opposed to the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. It's another way of saying he gives grace to those who've been broken. Chuck Colson, who went home to be with the Lord this past year, said this. If you don't know much about him, he was one of Nixon's lieutenants. Broken laws all around. He and a couple other guys related to Watergate. He was caught, sent to prison. He said this. The real legacy of my life was my biggest failure. The real legacy of my life was my biggest failure. That I was an ex-convict. My greatest humiliation, being sent to prison, was the beginning of God's greatest use of my life. Watch this. He chose the one experience in which I could not glory for his glory. Did Peter grow proud again once the ministry took off? Think of Pentecost. Think of the church in Jerusalem from nothing to 5,000 in a matter of days. 
Did he ever, you know, go back to, you know, that sense of bravado and, and uh, bragging, you know, that, yeah, that, that moment of unfaithfulness, that's back there, but it's back now uh, to, to Peter the Rock. Now, the last words he ever wrote are these, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to him belongs all the glory forever. Amen. Vance Havner, a country preacher and evangelist now with the Lord, and with this I close, put it this way. He said, God uses broken things. The broken alabaster box gives forth perfume. Broken soil produces a crop. Broken clouds give rain. Broken grain gives bread. And it is the broken bread that gives strength. So, Father, as you crushed your disciple openly and deeply, At the outset of a new year, what we need more than anything is this kind of conversation. Because at the heart of it, it isn't getting up at 8 or 7 or 6 or 5. It isn't checking the boxes off. It, It isn't a life of consistency and bravado and one success after another. It isn't living up to the name rock. It is loving you, even if at times we would have to admit that we love you no more than with the warm affection for a friend. We thank you as we come to this table that you have given us tangible evidences of your loyal, unfailing covenant of love. Thank you for giving us something to touch and taste You were crushed, not because of your iniquities, but because of ours. And by your stripes, your scourgings, we have been healed. Cause us to grow in the grace and knowledge of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For unto you belongs all glory forever. 